Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ. I want to thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and learn how to glorify and honor Him. got a special treat for you today. Brother Kurt Alford, one of the members of the Franklin Church of Christ, presented the following lesson back toward the beginning of 2006. I'm excited about it, and I hope it's beneficial to you. So open your Bibles, and let's learn how to honor and serve and glorify God together from His Word. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Jeremiah, the 7th chapter. We've been studying the Old Testament out in the auditorium on Sunday mornings. And the book of Jeremiah is written as the southern kingdom of Judah is uh, being prepared, or at least this chapter is, uh, they're in danger of being carried off. And of course, as we know, uh, eventually they are carried off into captivity. And in Jeremiah, chapter 7... I want to read for a few moments, beginning in verse 1, what God tells the people through Jeremiah as they are uh, battling or struggling with the Babylonians. In chapter 7 and verse 1, the the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood or walk after other gods to your hurt, Then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incest to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, Become a den of thieves in your eyes. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But now go to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do do to this house, which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I, have gave to you, which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. At this time, uh, Judah, uh, the Babylonians are coming in, the Babylonians are threatening them, they're being carried off slowly in different waves to, to be slaves to the Babylonians, and the people in Jerusalem are, are kind of walled into their city. If you remember back to uh, Hezekiah, he had uh, uh, brought the spring into the city, so they had water, they had food. They, they felt safe, they felt secure. And you've got a nation saying, you know, God's temple's here. We're God's chosen people. His temple's here. We're fine. God's going to teach a lesson to these Babylonians because we're the people of Israel. We're his chosen people. Nothing's going to happen to us. And what God says through Jeremiah is, don't trust in that temple, because you have not done what I told you to do. 
And just because you have this temple with my name on it does not mean that I'm going to take care of you because you have not done what I have told you to do. This morning I'd like to look at who do we trust in or what do we trust in? The children of Israel at this time, as we just read, were trusting in the temple. They were trusting in the fact that they were God's chosen people and that surely nothing would happen. And of course, as we know, uh, as we teach our children, that's not true. They were carried off to be slaves for the Babylonians. So this morning, I'd like to look at what we trust in and make sure that we are trusting in the right things. The first thing I'd like to look at is the phrase, I'm in the church. Or maybe as we're sitting here, we tend to think, well, I'm here Sunday morning and I get up early and I put on my suit and, you know, I brush my teeth and comb my hair and I get here Sunday morning and, yeah, I make it sometimes on Sunday nights and on Wednesday night if there's not a ball game on that I want to see, I'll make it then too. And, and we know people like that and we know people that say, well, I attend this church so I'm good and, and I can trust in that to, to save me. If you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And in Revelation chapter 3, one of what I think is the easier parts of Revelation to understand, uh, this, this thought, this idea is addressed. In Revelation chapter 3, and in verse 1, Jesus tells John, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you have a name that you're alive. Well, what does that mean? That means in that community in that church, in that congregation, they had people that they attended every day or every Sunday and every Wednesday. When those doors were open, they were there. And he's saying, you have a name. People think that you are worthy. People think that you are good and people think that you're obedient. But Jesus says in verse 2, I have not found your works perfect before God. Jesus is saying, yeah, I see what you're doing on Sunday and that you're there and that you're attending But I also see what you're doing on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday morning and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Jesus is saying, yeah, you've got a good reputation. Yes, you attend. Yes, you're there. Yes, you sit in that pew and you look very nice. But I know the truth. I know what's going on. In Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 14, Jesus calls out the Pharisees. Chapter 23 and verse 14 of Matthew. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers. For a pretense, make long prayers. 
They're pretending to be holy. They're going, at this time, they were going to the synagogue, and they were making long prayers, and they were getting up and speaking in the synagogue. And Jesus, in verse 14, calls them hypocrites. And he says, therefore, you will receive a greater condemnation. What's he saying? What did he say to the church at Sardis? He says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. Going back to the book of Jeremiah, he says, don't trust in the fact that you come here three times a week and you sit there and people think that you're a good person and that you're holy and that you're doing the things that you should do. He says, don't trust in that because I know what you're doing the rest of the time. In Matthew chapter 23, again in verse 23, Jesus again says to the Pharisees, calls them hypocrites, he says, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Attendance is important. Attendance is necessary. It has a lot of benefits. We're commanded to do it. But Jesus says, you ought to do that without leaving everything else undone. It means you should be here. It is the right thing to do. You need to be here. But don't let it stop there. It needs to continue. Something else we trust in, and I know that we've seen this with our, our co-workers who attend uh, doc, uh, denominational groups, our co-workers who uh, maybe watch those shows on TV. We trust in the grace of our loving God. God is such a loving God. He surely would not send me to hell for eternity because I miss a few services. Or maybe I don't do quite what I should. But, you know, those are small things. And surely I'm not going to suffer for eternity for those little things. I mean, I do the big stuff. And I do the important stuff. And, and maybe, you know, he loves me too much. And when people talk like that, when that logic or, or argument comes up, I think back to the story of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, the story of Noah. And this is one of those stories that is so simple, we teach our children this. So if you talk to, if you talk to my 8-year-old over here, she would tell you this story. And she would tell you what I'm about to tell you. In Genesis chapter 6, in verse 5, it reads, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, and the birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. God is, God is a loving God. And I don't want to discount that. I don't want to say anything different. But he is also a God of justice. And at the time of Noah, the earth was filled with wickedness. And God said, you know what? That's it. I'm done. It's time for justice. And it's time for these people to earn the rewards or to reap the rewards that they have earned. So yes, at the same time, in the same story, God is a loving God. God saved Noah and his wife, and his sons, and their wives. Eight people. But you think about the rest of the people on the planet, the women, the children, the old people, the, the people that were really horrible, and the people that weren't quite so horrible, they did okay. God said, no, 
you're not obeying me, that makes you wicked, and you're going to be destroyed. So yes, God is a loving God, and God will save us if we're obedient. But we cannot trust that God's going to overlook those things that maybe we just don't like to, to deal with. God does mete out justice. And if you keep, continue reading in Genesis uh, chapter 7, it'll tell you. Like I said, my children know this story. In chapter 7 and verse 23, he did destroy everything on the earth, except for the eight souls and the animals that were with him. So, we know that God's a loving God. And we know that God will punish those who are not obedient. If you look at Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, I want to look at a few things that fall into this idea that it's not so bad and God's going to overlook them. Luke chapter 14 and verse 16. It's a parable that Jesus is teaching. In verse 16, Jesus says, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who are invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they, with one accord, began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go, and I must see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them, and I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. The servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded, and there is still room. The master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. So, as Jesus is telling this parable, who are those people that are not going to taste his supper? Who are those people that were not covered by the grace of our loving God? Well, you've got a guy who bought a piece of ground. You've got a guy who bought some yokes, a yoke of oxen, farm equipment. He bought new farm equipment he had to go test out. You've got a guy who got married wants to go on his honeymoon. These are the types of things that Jesus says, you know what? You weren't obedient to me. You're not going to taste of my supper. These are the things that are not covered by the grace of our loving God. These small things, these things that you and I probably wouldn't think twice about. Jesus teaches obedience that is important. It is obedience to God's word that we should trust in. Something else that we tend to trust in is our own goodness, our own good works. You know, I do good things. I'm a nice person. In Second Chronicles, chapter 34. Second Chronicles, chapter 34. Starting in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He's an eight-year-old kid. He's becoming king. His father's been murdered because his father was so wicked that the other wicked people wanted to get rid of this even more wicked guy. His grandfather was wicked and brought the idolatry back into the city. And in verse 34, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. 
And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And in verse 3, we start reading about what he did to be called or to have it said about him that he was right in the sight of the Lord. In verse 3, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars, which were above them, he cut down, and the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images he broke into pieces, and they dusted them, and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And he, so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around him with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder, and cut down all of the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. So here's a guy that's 16 years old when he starts. By the time he's 20, he's ripping out the altars that are in Jerusalem. He even goes so far as to go up into Israel, the nation that's already been carried away by Assyria, the nation, the part of the Israelites that will never return, and he's taking the, altar, the uh, idols out of their country. He's bringing the worship of Jehovah back into Judah and Israel. <clears throat> in the 18th year of his reign, he purged the land and the temple, and he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So he's even going so far as to repair the temple. So he's gotten rid of the idols. He's bringing back the worship of Jehovah. He's repairing the temple. And when they came to Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. And they put it in the hand of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. He goes on to say they gave it to the workmen. They, they start restoring the house of God. So here's a man who, against what you would expect, against the training he probably received and was brought up with, starts serving God, brings back the worship of Jehovah. But if you continue in verse 14, they brought out the money, brought it into the house of the Lord, and Hilkiah, the high priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, all that was committed to your servants they're doing. So we're doing all this good stuff you told us to do. And they gathered the money in verse 17 that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it to the hand of the overseer and the workmen. And Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. What was it Josiah understood? He understood that despite all the good things that he was doing, restoring the worship of Jehovah to Judah, restoring it to Israel, who hadn't worshipped Jehovah since the days of Solomon, and he tore his clothes because he realized he was not obeying the law of God. He understood that despite all these things, 
He was not being obedient. In verse 21, he says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. He understood that there was more that was required than simply good works. It was obedience that's required. And he understood that. And despite all the good things that he had done, he understood that he was not obedient. He was not right in his relationship with God at that time. Another story, and again, this is a story we tell our children. We tell it in Bible class. I remember learning this probably about second grade. The story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3, if you want to look it up. They were moving the Ark of the Covenant. Something happens, the, the ox stumbles or whatever, the Ark starts to fall. And what does Uzzah do? Uzzah reaches out to stop the Ark from falling in the mud. Kind of makes sense, you know, it's, it's, it's a holy relic, it, it's, a, it's part of the, the temple, it, it's where, you know, the mercy seat of God, it, you don't want it to fall in the mud. But if you read that story, God was angry. And why was God angry? Because even though Uzzah did something good, he was disobedient. And he was struck dead. Good works do not say this. Obedience does. Trusting in time. You know, we can always... We call it procrastination. And I'm really good at procrastinating. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I am really good at it. Go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 27 in verse 1. 27 and verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Turn over a few more pages to chapter 29 and verse 1. He who is often reproved and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. He who hardens his neck, somebody who doesn't listen to the law, somebody who doesn't want to obey, no matter what you tell him, will suddenly be destroyed. If you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, I really like the book of Ecclesiastes. I've taught it to some of the younger children before. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, as Solomon has, has gone in and has you know, written down, has documented what he did in his career to try to find some kind of fulfillment and happiness and try to find the meaning of life, if you will, as he winds down his book and he comes to his conclusion, he says in chapter 12 and verse 1, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember now. You know, we tell it to our young people, it's like, you know, you've got to start young. You've got you know, you to go to church while you're young because it'll make it easier when you're older. Solomon is saying, remember now to everyone. Remember now. Don't do it tomorrow. Don't, don't say, well, I can, you know, I want to finish this, what I'm doing, and I'll go do that later. He says, remember now. He goes on to say at the end of the book, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. And Solomon is saying, do it now. 
Don't trust that you will have tomorrow. Don't trust that you can build good habits tomorrow, that you can start being obedient tomorrow, that, that you can start obeying God's law tomorrow. He says, do it now. And he tells me, this book is not written to just our young people. Even though Solomon says, remember now, your creator in the days of your youth. It's written to adults. And he's telling us to do it now. Finally, I'd like to look at trusting in men. Trusting in men. Trusting in, you know, you'll hear, uh, you'll have a conversation. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you're trying to talk about religious or biblical things? They'll say, oh, I need to go talk to my priest. Or so-and-so told me this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's, he's talking about the Corinthians and one of the issues that they have, and that issue is that they're following after men. They're saying, well, so-and-so told me this. You know, Paul has told me this, so I can do it. And, and his friend is saying, well, no, Paul told me something different, or Paul says this, and I can do it. And in verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And, of course, we often go to this to talk about unity, and this, is, this passage certainly teaches that. But I'd like to talk for a minute about trusting in men. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, you know, Paul told me this. Paul did this. Or I know that Paul did that. Or Apollos. I know that Apollos is, is, is wanting to do this. And what Paul says to the, to the Corinthians about that in chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not carnal? Carnal meaning of the world? He says, when you follow after men, are you not of the world, no matter who that man is? Now, certainly I don't want to say that we shouldn't be asking advice from our elders or older men, and I'll tell you before I make any major life decision, that's exactly what I do. Before I moved to Tennessee, I was on the phone a number of times with some people that I really trusted. You know, as a sounding board, am I making a right decision? Does this make sense? But, you know what? When I go to judgment, I can't get up there and say, you know, Lord, I did that because David Coleman told me I could. You know, we, and we teach that to our kids, don't we? I know I heard. How many of you heard, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? How many of you heard? I heard that. I don't know how many times I heard that. Enough that I rolled my eyes at my mother and got in trouble for that too. But we tell that to our children. That just because your friends do it doesn't mean you get to do it. And yet somehow as we grow up, we lose that lesson. And we say, well, they told me I could do it. Or we depend on the preacher. The preacher said it's okay, so I must be okay. And what I'm saying to you is, you can't trust in that. Because when you go to judgment, it's not going to matter what I did, or what David did, or what Phil, or what anybody did. God's going to look at you and say, 
what did you do? If you go to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 12, Solomon has died. The kingdom is passing to his son, Rehoboam, who makes some very, very foolish decisions. First Kings chapter 12, we'll start in verse 1. Now Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it was when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent to him and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole congregation of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the burdensome burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. And so he said to them, Depart for three days and come back. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today, and serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the counsel which the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What counsel do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father laid a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And again, we tell this story to our children, that, okay, you need to listen to your elders, you need to listen to those that are wiser. But I'd like to say that that's not necessarily Rehoboam's mistake. It wasn't really wrong that he asked the elders and got some good advice, or that he asked his friends and got some bad advice. But who's the, who's the one person he didn't ask? We don't read anywhere in there where he got down on his knees and prayed and said, God, what should I do? He never asked God what he should do. He never looked to God to find out what he should do. He listened to men. Whether good advice or bad advice, something wise or something foolish, he was looking to men for an answer. In Luke chapter 10, we read the story of Martha and Mary. Can you imagine what, would, what Mary would have missed if she had listened to the advice of her sister and said, we've got to clean the house? And I know how important a clean house is. Believe me. When we have company, I try to stay at work late so I don't have to participate in it. I know how important that is to a wife and to a mother. But can you imagine what Mary would have missed if she had listened to her sister? Or do, you, or do you remember chapter 20 of Matthew, where the mother of James and John said to Jesus, I want my sons to be prominent. I want them to be your number one and number two guy. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. Too many times, we depend on other men instead of depending on God. So the question I would want you to leave with today, and the thing I would want you to think about as you go home, is who are you trusting in? 
And for an answer, or what should be our answer, I'd like to go back to the book of Jeremiah, where we started. Jeremiah chapter 7. God tells the people, don't trust in the temple. But he does tell them what they should trust in. He says in verse 5, If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. What's he telling them? Your ways and your doings? What is that? That's obedience. That's what he's telling them. He's saying to the Israelites, if you want to be safe from Babylon, if you want to dwell in this land forever, you keep up your end of the bargain, I will keep up my end. You obey me, you follow the law that I have given you, and I will take care of you, and you will live in this land forever. And that is no different than the message he gives us today. It's obedience. If we want to spend eternity with our Lord, if we want to eat at the Great Supper with Him, as Jesus said in the parable, it's obedience is what we should trust in. We should trust in what He has written in His Word. Not in other men, not in those people around us, however smart they might be, not in, our, not in ourselves, not in our own good works, we can't trust that we're going to have tomorrow to fix it and make it better. We must trust in the Word. Trusting God to save us, that He will keep His promises, that if we keep up our end of the bargain, if we're obedient to death, that He will take care of us. That He will take us to heaven to be with Him. And if you're here this morning and you find if you look at yourself in the mirror, if you think about it, and you find that you haven't been trusting in God, that you've got something else you're depending on, whether it be the fact that you're so young that you're not going to die for another 50 or 60 years, or whether the fact that you're doing exactly what your parents told you to do, or the fact that you're here sitting in a pew and that's good enough, I'm telling you that's a foolish thing to do. And that you need to make a change. If you are not fully obedient to the Lord, then you are trusting. You are like, again, another little song we teach our kids, the man who built his house on the sand, and it's going to go splat. So if you're here this morning, you're not trusting in the Word of God. Please, come down to the front. We can help you with that. We would love to help you with that. We stand and sing this invitation song. I hope this lesson presented by Brother Kurt Alford has been beneficial to you. If you have any questions about this lesson, about the Franklin Church of Christ, or about how to serve and honor and glorify God, please give us a call at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody gave you this lesson on CD or audio tape. If that's the case, allow me to encourage you to go to that website I just mentioned. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. 
We have numerous lessons there, both in outline and audio format. You are free to download them and use them in whatever way you believe will glorify God and help others overcome the tempter. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.